It's often said that purposeful work is one of the ingredients of a meaningful life. But what really is purpose? How do you find it? And what do you do once you have? It cannot be true if women are 51% of the population and they only receive 2 or 3% of venture capital dollars. It cannot be true that 98% of entrepreneurial talent resides within men. This is a completely untapped skill pool and no one's investing into them. So there's much less competition because they're not being pursued by the VCs. That just presents opportunity as an arbitrage. Welcome back to The Purpose Effect. I'm Elena. Join me as I speak to the women building purposeful work lives about what purpose really means to them and what they've learned on their journeys so far. So I think you're really going to like today's episode. I'm talking to Tanya Rolf, who has made it her mission over the last five years to get more money into the hands of women. This began with funding more female entrepreneurs through LIC, which was the Ladies Investment Club, and also her capital based in Singapore, but she has now co-founded two businesses, Harriet, which supports female founders in accessing capital, and Sophia, which is an investment education platform. We'll deep dive into the reason behind those business names later in the episode. We're talking about why women aren't investing at the same rate of men, and when they do, the kinds of products they're looking for. We talk about how women are more interested in ESG and impact investments, which means that everybody benefits when more women control more money, and why it's therefore crucial that we close the investment gap. But to begin with, I asked Tanya how she transitioned from a career in law and got started on this journey in the first place. As you rightly pointed out, was many years in private practice law firms, and I'll be honest with you, I found it an incredibly uh, gender bias environment. And mm-hmm. I didn't much enjoy it because I c- couldn't fit into that. Uh, I couldn't conform to that law firms um, and probably corporates generally are, are run. In my last role, I was heading up sort of um, teams of lawyers and, and looking after corporate lawyers, looking after like managing their um, performance and, um, you know, appraisals and recruitment and, you know, really getting my hands dirty with regards to people management and just seeing, in, actually in my last two roles, just seeing the way that we treated men versus women. Number one told me that this was the wrong environment for me and where I, I didn't believe in the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and number two gave me the fire in the belly yeah. to do something different. And it was at the time that I, so I left my last legal job uh, pregnant, heading off on maternity leave. And I had a baby girl, my second child. And I think it was the birth of my daughter that really compelled me to say, to stop and pause for a moment and just say, wow, what a biased world we live in. And I, and I look back now and I realize how blinkered I must have been um, before the age of 30 um, because I hadn't really noticed it. I hadn't really educated myself. No one had mentioned this, that this is the world we live in. It was just accepted, and I think that's probably the case for a lot of us. So it was that um, that really compelled me to change course, and I moved to Singapore whilst on maternity leave from London, mm-hmm. and I got to Singapore, and I just felt like, felt like I had the sun shone every day, and I lived by the beach, and I had these two amazing babies. I had 
the world of, at my feet. I had a huge opportunity. I had a live-in nanny, which I'd never had before in London because that's just, you know... A, Completely unaffordable. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I had this... It just felt like, oh, I can literally just rewrite myself. And actually, I felt very different as a new mum. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought, I have a different purpose. I have a different, like, calling. Um, and that was to support women and, and try to you know, educate myself on all the gender biases that exist in the world. And the more I delved in, the more passion I had for the, for, for the cause. But also the flip side of that is the more cynical and sort of angry I became and frustrated. Yeah. Um, and I had to channel that anger and frustration um, and shock, actually. It was a lot of shock, you know, particularly around women's health and things like this. So I was so I had to channel that. So that's where I, you know, when I began to start investing into female entrepreneurs. I'm really interested in the fact that you have these two businesses and they're both named after women. So <laughs> who are Sophia and Harriet? And, and when you think of the kind of customer you're trying to attract, are these also embodiments of certain kinds of women? Yes. So uh, Sophia means wisdom in Greek, by the way, in case anyone was wondering where the name comes from. We called it Sophia because um, we wanted to, we wanted a nod to education because at the core of Sophia, we're many, many things, uh, but at the core of Sophia, we're we're an education platform. Um, And so that it's a female name, obviously. um, And obviously we're just for women. Um, although having said that, a lot of corporates actually buy our courses for men and women, and we don't discourage that. All, all we want at Sophia is that for women to be included, and we believe that by building something that is by women for women, that, that will automatically interest and intrigue women to join and get involved. Whereas if we were gender neutral, we would just be like any other education platform. But men are absolutely welcome to do our courses at Sophia. Um, with regards to Harriet, so Harriet is named after Harriet Martineau. Um, and she was an, she was an English um, social theorist. Um, and she was a bit of a trailblazer in her time. Um, and I forget the year that she was from, but she really um, pushed the boundaries and um, as a woman. And so we just... Actually, my business partner at Harriet, um, Anna, she, she, she suggested Harriet to me. And I thought, you know what, why not? Because I've got Sophia, it's Sophia and Harriet. They, they kind of have a, a nice ring to it. But um, I don't only um, run businesses with women's names. I kind of <laughs> like it. I liked it too. It feels very personal, like yeah. Sophia or Harriet. They're also your girlfriend, right? They're somebody who's navigating this journey with you. So when you decided that you wanted to invest into female entrepreneurs, how did you get started? So so what happened was I was on maternity leave. my, My daughter was a few months old and I said, okay, I think I'm ready to to do something. I didn't want to go back into corporate, but I'm ready to use my brain and be around people and engage and and do something meaningful. So I went to a few angel investment sort of networks and really just observed. I just started observing what, how they worked because for me, this was a new area. You know, I'd always worked, um, in a corporate, I hadn't, didn't have a huge, you know, portfolio of investments at this time. So I 
just rocked up and just started listening and pretending and nodding in all the right places and pretending I knew what I was talking about um, and learned from other people, started to pick up and we you know what was a good deal, what was a bad deal or what people thought were good and bad deals and then realized, okay, there was a lot of men on stage um, and maybe there was like a token woman from the marketing team that was up there to justify sort of their diverse team yeah. um, and who didn't get to say anything. And I just thought, wow, what's going on with women and founding companies? So started doing a lot of research and realized, ah, that's why there's no women on this stage. There's just so few women getting funding. And that's sort of what sent me off. So yes, my very first investment was just my own money. It was a tiny investment. It was like probably 5,000 sing dollars, you know, into a company. You know, I was in a swimming pool one night about 10 p.m. Here in Singapore, it's always hot. So we can do night swimming. And I was chatting um, and we said, I said, you know, what if I could get a group of people like me to come together and pool our money and support female entrepreneurs in a more sort of meaningful, bigger way not only like bigger check sizes but also we can kind of pool our expertise as a team and provide that support to the founder and that's how that happened and so was that then the birth of Harriet or one of your previous ventures so that was the birth of um Lick which is Ladies Investment Club okay so I went out and I found women to join me and actually it was really really hard to find women to join me because women are not naturally, you know, if you look, if you look at the data, women don't invest at the same rate as men. So finding women that had that disposable income first and foremost, and then, you know, had the risk appetite yeah. and the knowledge um, and the ambition and, and, the, and the interest in gender lens investing and gender equality, you know, all of those things combined were required. So it was a very, very hard feat. And I almost gave up probably you know, more times than I care to remember. Mm. Um, but eventually I got to around 40 ladies. Okay. And so we were investing, finding deals, due diligencing them together. And that was the Ladies Investment Club. And what we realized is that in Singapore and Southeast Asia, more broadly, there was a huge amount of talent, both locally grown, but also people coming in from outside the area, outside the region, but, you know, Vietnamese founders, Indonesian, Malaysian, you know, all based in Singapore because we're such a hub. When you look at VC um, and these angel networks, there were no women. So I was thinking, well, where are they getting their funding from? And the answer was they weren't. Um, And so what that posed is a massive opportunity for us because it cannot be true if women are 51% of the population um, and they only receive 2 or 3% of venture capital dollars. It cannot be true that 98% of entrepreneurial talent resides within men. Yeah. So therefore, if we have women who have this talent, they're not getting the funding, this is a completely untapped you know, skill pool and no one's investing into them. So when you look at VCs, they're all chasing the same deals. They look the same, you know, they're very similar. Um, and so there's a lot of competition. But when you look at women founders, there's much less competition because they're not being pursued by the VCs. That just presents opportunity as an arbitrage. And so we, you know, we said, okay, let's do this for a couple of years. We did that for a couple of years and we realized 
yes, this has legs because no one else is catching on to gender lens investing in this region. No one's seeing it as the opportunity that it is, despite all the data. You know, there's so many reports, there's so much data out there from really credible sources around the performance of female entrepreneurs. So on the back of that data and the lack of competition in Asia, we decided to launch Her Capital, which was a venture capital fund. Um, and then what happened was we started to realize that, you know, as a fund manager, I was going out and asking people to invest into our fund for us to invest into female entrepreneurs. And it sort of blew people's minds. And perhaps we were a few years ahead of our times in this when region. When was this? That was two th that we got our license for the fund three weeks before COVID hit Singapore. Okay. So that would have been January 2020. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Two and a half years ago. I mean, it seems mm. crazy to me that as early as two and a half years ago, people weren't viewing gender lens investing as the opportunity it is. I think it was 2015 when the UN SDGs were agreed. It was already acknowledged at that time that investing in women and girls was key to growing economies. So it seems like there's been quite a lag. I don't know if that's just Asia or, or the world in general, but you would have thought, world, yeah. <laughs> considering the amount of opportunity, that more people would be pouncing on it rather than, you know, chasing after the same, often mostly tech deals, mm. which is a, a really crowded marketplace. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But if you think about it, investors are, and VC included, which is it, it, it's super ironic, but you think of VC investors as sort of a bit trigger happy, a bit gung-ho, yeah. you know, making money left, right and center, investing in everyone. But really they're not. They're very, you know, they're quite risk averse and they're also cookie cutting. They're reviewing a deal based on what's happened with a similar company in the past. So if you're a female founder building a company for childhood anxiety, mm -hmm. okay, for the one billion children in the world that have mental health issues, okay, if you take that to a VC, there's no cookie cutter for them to, there's nothing for them to benchmark that against. So this is an unknown. So it's too risky for them. If I take uh, a company that says, I'm going to deliver your groceries 10 minutes faster than the company that's gone before, they're all over it because they can see that X company delivers groceries in 20 minutes. We can do it in 10 and they're now worth a gazillion dollars. So we'll be worth a gazillion and some. Mm -hmm. You know, women often build businesses for women, actually. Um, we usually, because there's so few women that have been, so few businesses that have been built for women, we as women go through life and we go, I cannot believe that this hasn't been solved. Um, I cannot believe that I'm still experiencing extreme period pain every month. I cannot believe that my endometriosis is not under control and there's no quick diagnosis. I cannot believe that there are no contraception options that have changed in the last 40 years. The list goes on. So we tend to, you know, see a lot of these problems, live a lot of these problems and build businesses to solve these problems. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that is, of course, when you go to raise funds, there's none of these businesses that have gone before. And also you're pitching largely to a group of men. And, you know, try explaining endometriosis to yeah. a man. Try telling them the pain points of contraception. They don't really care. They, they, you know, they don't see the, the same things that you and I see yeah. as women because we've gone through it or we know our friends have. You know, there's a different uh, level of understanding. Yeah, and I think even just anecdotally, you and I as women can understand the value in 
for example, um, another woman who's been on this podcast, she set up a community and resources around um, menopausal and perimenopausal health and fitness and how to be healthy and fit and change your diet and your exercise in that time of your life. And you and I can understand, yes, of course, this makes total sense. I would use this. I can rec- could recommend this to five friends. But a male VC in the room that you're pitching that to is not going to have that context. Yeah, absolutely. 12% of the population at any one time is going through the menopause. Wow. That's 12% of, I think we've got, what, 7 billion people in the world. This, this is, you know, this is not a niche market. This, this is, this is a, a big opportunity. Um, and it's an area that's got a lot of runway because there's not been a lot that's gone before. Yeah, I mean, and in, in some ways, I, I certainly don't want to be sort of man bashing here. It's, it makes absolute sense, okay? If I'm a 50-year-old man and you come in and try to pitch to me um, about menopause, there's literally no way I can understand what menopause is. I've not been through it. You know, maybe my wife has, so, so maybe I can ask her. Mm-hmm. But there's literally no way I can understand it as a 50-year-old man. So it's, it actually makes great sense that men don't understand this and very and very you know rarely invest into this space because they haven't been through it it's not a pain point um and if you come and pitch to me a you know a product for erectile dysfunction I also haven't been through that I can't imagine what that's like um also I would think there's like 25 different medicines on the market already so you don't need any more (laughs) we don't need any more of that but you know, my understand my point yeah. is that we can't, we have to be able to empathize or feel that pain point. And I think, so the problem really lies in the lack of diversity in decision makers at venture capital funds. Yeah. So if we had more diverse viewpoints in the decision making, we would probably have more diverse founders. Um, and so what we experienced at um, Her Capital is just a complete lack of female investors, despite the fact that we were female fund managers, which is a rarity, and we were investing into female entrepreneurs, which again is even more rare. So we couldn't find the women that we wanted to invest into us. We didn't just want a bunch of guys investing in us. We wanted a diverse investor base. And that's where the idea for um, Sophia came from, is I wanted to get more women investing. And what I realized is that women are not investing for so many reasons. But one of those reasons is a lack of knowledge. And I wanted to go out there and share some knowledge and bring wonderful female experts together from Asia and really get women engaged in money. And I believe that as the majority population, and even though we've only got a third of the world's wealth, this is $93 trillion. This is not a small amount of money. We have a lot of power. Yes. I I never thought of it that way, but yes, that is significant power. So let's talk a little bit more about Sophia and the aims there. So one of the barriers to investment you mentioned is just education. Women feel that they don't know enough and so they're not willing to put money behind, you know, part of it could be imposter syndrome. We're not willing to put money into products that we don't feel like we really, really understand. But what what are some of the other barriers? Um, because one that I hear often is I don't feel like I have enough money to invest. Mm. Yeah. So there's a ton of reasons. I think 
um, I'm going to start at the beginning. I think the first reason is is definitely a lack of financial education in our schooling. Mm-hmm. And that goes for men and women. That's applicable across the world. Um, that's applicable where I come from in London. It's applicable here in Asia, perhaps even more so in Asia in terms of life skills because we're so academically focused. Yep. Um, but it is a problem the world over. Life skills are very much lacking from our schooling. And so... Um, when you think about money habits, most money habits are formed by around the age of seven. If you um, are 37 and you and then all of a sudden say, oh, goodness me, I do need to start to learn about money, what you need to do first is undo 30 years of bad habits. Yeah. Okay. And that is no small feat. So education is definitely, is definitely one. Um, two is how we were raised. So, you know, did our mum and dad did they have money? Did they have a lot of money? Were they good with money? Were they savers? Were they spenders? Were they in debt? Did they live, you know, week to week paychecks? Like all of these things feed into our mindset, our money mindset. Then there's a lack of female representation yeah. in the financial services industry. So I forget the exact stat, but it's over 80% of financial advisors and wealth managers are, fem- are, are male. 85%. We have so few females in, you know, in advisory roles within financial institutions. So what does that mean as, as for you and me, Eleanor, means that when a bank or financial advisor, wealth manager puts out, you know, their marketing materials, they're putting products together, they're not speaking to you and yeah. me. They're not, because they can't, because they're mostly speaking to men. And so, and therefore men are their customers. So it's chicken and egg. Yeah. Their bulk of their customers are males. So they're targeting those males mm-hmm. and we just continue to get excluded. And why, Eleanor, would you and I be interested in um, so buying some financial products when this doesn't look like it's for us? The imagery, the language, you know, none of it resonates with me. Women are statistically more likely to want to invest in, you know, ESG products. So products that are better for our environment, better for people. Well, is that factored into what these, you know, these products that they're putting out? Probably not because, you know, statistically men care less about these things. And I know that sounds harsh, but this is the data, right? And that we care more about this. We're twice as likely to invest into female entrepreneurs as men are. Like, So what we care about, what we want to invest in is different. So if no one's speaking our language, then why we're not going there and they're not targeting us. They don't care. They've got 49% of the population that they're targeting men and men hold the majority of the wealth. So we only have, despite being 51% of the population, we actually only have 33% of the global wealth, which is around $93 trillion. So We have less money. There's a gender pay gap. So we've got less disposable income, which means we have less to invest, which means we're more risk averse because we have less. And there's, you know, it means more for us to lose it, which means we have less opportunity to grow our wealth. You know, you add all these things together and I think you end up with the situation that we're in today. And it absolutely makes sense to me why we're in this situation, but it doesn't have to be like that. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that, that way. When you speak to SOFIA members, given this context that you've just described, that the investment products that are aimed at women are not out there because investment um, managers are not and banks are not 
uh, speaking to women, what are the kinds of things that women would like to invest in? What kinds of products do you think women are looking for? I think women are first and foremost looking at what is the impact of this investment. To use my sort of um, a bit tongue-in-cheek analogy earlier around, you know, grocery delivery company. I know very few women that will be presented with um, this as an investment opportunity and be intrigued to know more. Because where's the impact? Yeah. You know, to say, you know, if you open the pitch deck and it says, we can deliver your groceries 10 minutes faster than X. Like women are... Most women, and I speak, you know, generalizing here, but most women are um, are looking at that and saying, well, yes, but am I going to feel good about this investment? Putting my money here, is this going to better the world? No, it's not actually. Um, not really. Um, is this going to, you know, help vulnerable people, help disadvantaged people? Is this going to, what is the impact of this on the planet? It's very hard to see any of these points that we value in a business like that. Whereas if I present to you a business that is there to help children who are unable to see a psychologist because we have a global shortage of psychologists and we have a mental health crisis globally, that's impactful. That immediately gets attention because as a woman, as a mother, you know, as a grandmother, as a teacher, as an educator, as a carer, we have that streak in us that says, wow, there is a vulnerable group here and I have the ability to be part of creating something to help improve lives of those people. And that is where I want my dollars to go. And the more aware you are as a woman of the lack of services that are there for women um, or vulnerable groups of people, the more likely you are to invest into these areas. Women's health is a huge area that women want to invest into because we've experienced it. So if I said to you, um, okay, there's an option to invest into um, period pain business, um, infertility business, a pregnancy business, a, a postnatal depression business, a menopause business, you know, a contraceptive business, like there's almost a chance that you've experienced one, if not all of those issues. And you can resonate with that. And you can say, you know what, that is a real problem because I am not a minority here. I am 51% of the world's population. We're all going through one of one or many or all of those things. This presents not only a financial opportunity, but it actually is meaningful and it's going to help my daughter, your daughter, you know, et cetera, future generations. So, That's a broad kind of generalization that women only want to invest into things that are doing good for the planet. But I think the statistics back that up. I would love to talk a little bit about the focus on children because I was startled, I think, to learn that by the age of seven, many of your mindsets around money are already fixed. Um, I have two six-year-old boys, so we're getting very close to that space. And I think it's only recently that they've started to talk about money, that we've started to talk to them about saving. We haven't talked to them about investment. So I would be interested to know how you handle those kinds of conversations with your kids, but how you teach other women to to bring that kind of education into, into their families as well. Yes, this is, this is a great question. This is my um, passion. So I think after 
you know, when Sophia is going gangbusters um, next year, uh, we're we're not even a year old, um, then money and children and getting children engaged is is sort of my next on my list. I believe that children should start to be socialized and uh, around money from around the age of four. And that doesn't mean that we start to, um, you know, make them earn money or um, get them obsessed with money. Um, but it just means that they're familiar about how money works. Um, and how do you do that? I think you, you do that through introducing an allowance of some pocket money as what can you do with that? So I have a five-year-old girl and a seven-year-old boy. They already have more understanding of some of the real key core financial concepts and principles uh, now at age five and seven than I did probably by the age of 25, <laughs> 30 years old. So this is very much possible, right? And this is not something that we do. I'm not a gazillionaire they get $5 a week, five Singapore dollars a week. And each week on a Friday, they have their jars out in front of them, old school, um, because I think it's important when you're teaching children of Visual. this age, you don't do it digitally, you do it visually. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And they need to touch it, etc. So how we do it is we have a jar for long-term saving. So they they have to save something from their $5 and they invest something from their $5 and then they have whatever's left, they can spend on whatever they want. And I kind of let them go rogue with that whatever's left because I'm really strict about, you know, the bright blue candy in the store. But I, with that, they can buy the bright, bright blue candy in the store. So, um, so what normally happens is they take the $5 and they put $1 into um, saving, into investing, sorry, and they put $2 into their long-term saving. And what that's for is it's for like, a toy in Toys R Us that's $50. So they're saving up for something there. Um, or like my son at the moment, he's saving up for a go-kart, which is oh, wow. $300. <laughs> I know, it's huge. I don't know if he'll, he'll get there. But, um, and then the other um, $2 they can spend on the, on the candy or whatever they want to do. And what that's teaching them is just getting them into the habit with a really small amount of money that you don't go out with your salary each month and, you know, go crazy on the, on the town um, and the, the, the mall shopping and then say, oh, I've only got 100 bucks left at the end of this month. That's all I can save. No, you save your $1,000 and then you say, okay, what have I got left to go crazy with? Like this is the, just a very simple, sounds simple. How many people do it? Not many. So the kids are learning this at a really young age. So from the age of seven, you're right, many money habits by the age of seven are formed. doesn't mean we can't undo them or if you've got an eight-year-old, you know, oh, you're doomed forever. But it just gets harder after the age of seven. So when I see a lot of financial literacy um, government initiatives to bring it in to teenagers, universities, this is all great. But why are we, do why are we waiting until then? Because what happens is these children are forming ideas because we're not talking to the kids about it. Um, and so by the age of 15, they've got many years of bad habits or, or misunderstanding around what money is um, that you're then backtracking on. So great, we should do it, but surely we should be starting when, when they're actually, their brains are sponges um, and they're also excited by it. Imagine saying to a group of 15-year-olds at high school, 
Right, class, it's time for us to talk about money. What's tax? What's this? <laughs> oh, yeah, boring. I'm not listening to this. I'm going to scroll on Instagram. Talk to your six-year-olds about it. They love yeah. it. They can't get enough of it. They want to earn money. They want to put it in their jars. They want to watch their investment. They want to see what's happening. They want to go to the store with their $50 and buy that bigger ticket you know, item. They want to do all it. They want that independence. They want that freedom. They want that achieve, sense of achievement. And they're loving yeah. it. And so why wouldn't we do it at that time? It's, it's madness. Yeah. And, and I think, again, many of the financial products out there that are aimed at children focus on saving. Mm. I think I remember having a kid's saving account when I was younger. But if you can get them to understand investment at a young age, the upside for them is so much higher, right? I mean, I know it might be a bit difficult for really young kids to understand the power of compound interest and how they... No, they, they get that. Really? They get it. <laughs> Amazing. And, and, and imagine you start that at, at six or seven years old, that the value of compound interest when you're starting, you know, we, we use a robo-advisor for their investment and they watch it each week um, going up and down and it's been a bit of a rocky um, few months. But they, you know, imagine like over long term seeing that and the benefit of that compound interest. They really do understand that. Um, so I think that we shy away from certain topics yeah. with children because we think they don't have the capacity to understand it. Of course, you dial it down according to the age. Um, but oh my goodness, they really get it. They really do. Yeah. And perhaps also it's part of our own insecurities around money or our own money mindsets, which make the idea of talking to our children about money uncomfortable. Yeah, you're right. If we created the course for parents, because what we recognize is that whilst the parents are doing this course, they're learning as well. So they're learning something and then they're imparting knowledge onto the kids. So uh, otherwise you would just teach the kids, right? Do a course for kids. No, no, no. You need to teach the parents to teach the kids because they're the ones that are there with the actions. Because financial literacy for kids is really twofold. You need the knowledge and then you need the actions. So the parents are doing the action bit. You know, we're doing the pocket money, the allowance every week. But where's the knowledge coming from, the foundational knowledge? You've got to hit it to sort of twofold, I think. Yeah. Um, I just want to quickly circle back to something that we talked about earlier to do with women and their confidence around investment, because women often feel that they lack the, the knowledge or they feel really hesitant or unconfident about making investments. But the research shows that often female investors outperform men. Um, so I was wondering what you, why you think that might be. Interesting. The uh, same data applies for women in tech as well. 15% of women are in computer science courses, girls are in computer science courses around the world, um, and yet we outperform boys at school, and yet there are very few women in tech. In tech. Yeah. So this is, this is very, um, this is not unique to the financial services industry. I think, I think it goes back to my points I made earlier around um, not being socialized around money not chit-chatting, you know, when was the last time you spoke with your girlfriends about investments or money? Um, very rarely. Yeah. Even me and my colleagues, at Sophia, my co-founders, you know, our respective friends, we don't have those conversations because no one wants to have that conversation with you at a bar drinking wine. So, um, so there's that. Um, then 
in terms of we feel we don't have the knowledge, well, the truth is, is that we probably don't, most of us. Um, but that goes for men too. The difference between men and women is that men are talking about it and they're chit-chatting with their friends and they're sharing investment opportunities and they're going for it because they have a bit more money in the bank so they can afford to take that bit bigger risk. For me, what's really important is we don't, you know, come out of this and say, you know, all the problem lies within women and their lack of confidence. It really, yes, there might be a lack of confidence, but there's absolutely compelling and justifiable reasons as to why they have that lack of confidence. Um, and it's our whole society, you know, our society makeup, our upbringing, you know, statistically speaking, boys are much more likely to be spoken to about money and entrepreneurship by their parents than girls are. So there's, there's a whole host of reasons. And equally at school, boys are twice as likely to be told to go into tech than girls are. And the same for financial services. So, you know, there's no role models for us. We're not like, no one's speaking to us. Like, it's just, there's so many reasons. And I think that I don't want women to feel that there's something wrong with us or them individually. It's not. It's a whole, you know, history of money. Look at the very history of money. Women haven't been working that long, actually, in um, when you think about it and we're still quite new to the workforce you know to education to all these things and these all these things take time um, but now is the time for us to change this because we have more women than ever before more educated than ever before you know earning more money than ever before in the workforce more than ever before like now is the time we need to change and start to change history for the better yeah and I think when we do just look at the impact we can make particularly when it comes to investments, for example, in the ESG space, like you highlighted earlier, Mm. if we are more inclined to put money with businesses that are creating real impact, think of the impact that we could have at this time in our our lives and in our history where we really need money behind some of these big projects trying to solve issues with climate change, with food insecurity, with uh, income inequality. We really need this money now. It's just not directed in ways that are creating equality. But if we can diversify where that money goes, um, starting with women, but but also with all other um, diverse founders, then maybe we can make more of an impact in that space. Yeah. And the whole world needs women to be investing. It's not just we're doing this for ourselves. The whole world benefits when women are investing because of our um, our own internal thesis, our own um, values and where we put our money. The whole world benefits. Um, you know, when you think about climate change, it's not just women that benefit from that. Yeah, Men need women to be investing too because we actually care about a lot of things that are overlooked right now. And so it's in everybody's interest to get women investing with their dollars. Yeah. Only good things happen when women have more money and more access yeah. to directing money. Um, yeah. So just to wrap up, I wanted to ask, what makes you feel on purpose? Um, probably the fact that I have a five-year-old daughter watching me mm. and learning from me, I hope, um, a lot of um, value in her as a girl um, and in her potential and and showing her what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and talking to her about why I do it. Um, and she understands that. And I think that that matters to me because I think that I can see that future generations 
will hopefully benefit from changes that we can, you know, we can make, we can affect now. Yeah. Um, and I'm living and breathing that every day with my five-year-old daughter. And just think about when she has her own children, how much more better equipped they will be to mm-hmm. um, navigate their own money. And hopefully, because of what you've taught your daughter, they'll also be much wealthier because yeah. she's... <laughs> she's. I hope so. I'm relying on them to look after <laughs> me in my old age. Um, <laughs> So how can listeners become Sophia members? And is Sophia available everywhere or do you have to be in Singapore or here in Asia? No, 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 we're a digital platform. So you can go onto our website, sophiawomen.com. You can purchase individual courses. You can sign up to our newsletter, our membership. There's some free resources on there. Like there's a free introductory like a course to teach women how to you know, think about angel investing. Um, you know, if you're ever thinking about it, not quite ready, but just want to learn a bit more, there's a great um, angel investing 101 on there. Um, follow us on LinkedIn. We do posts pretty much every day, just sharing a lot of information, a lot of data. And um, yeah, and connect with me personally as well on LinkedIn. Um, always happy to to chat with people and answer questions. Um, so what's next then for Sophia and Harriet? Great question. Um, so for Sophia, we are coming up to 10 months old, continuing to build out our curriculum. We've got uh, another five courses to finish by the end of this year before we can get a Christmas break. So uh, no pressure there. Uh, we're expanding the team um, we are working with some of the world's biggest financial institutions um, who are buying our courses for their customers, for their employees, which is fantastic. Um, so continues on the sales there. Um, so that's really our Sophia kind of um, next 12 months, I would say. That's going to keep us busy. For Harriet, we're working with, um, and I, I realize I haven't talked much about Harriet, but Harriet is a company I set up with Anna, who is from my venture fund that we had. She was a venture partner for for me at the fund. And we've partnered at Harriet to really take one female founder at a time who's fundraising in a business that really matters to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the moment, we're supporting an Australian founder um, with a mental health business for children, which I sort of alluded to earlier. This kind of business really matters to us. Um, and so we're helping her fundraise. So we help founders fundraise, opening our networks to them. Um, and we want to continue to do that just one founder at a time, because then it allows us to really double down, learn everything about the business, build a great relationship with the founder, you know, and really kind of get them funded fast. Um, so that's, that's the future for Harriet. We're also building a resources platform at Harriet. So female founders, even if we're not helping them fundraise because, as I say, we can only help one at a time. But we've got some great resources on there, some free resources to help you with your business and also some um, partnerships that we've formed with other businesses. So that's actually being built at the moment. Lots going on, that's for sure. Well, good luck with it all. I'm going to be watching with interest um, what's coming up for Sophia and also uh, taking a look at some of these new resources that um, will be going live on the Harriet platform. Um, but thank you so much for your time, Tanya. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And um, yeah, I 
really think that the work you're doing with Sophia and Harriet, it's, it's so needed right now. And I would love to see what happens in five years down the track, where the needle is then and, and whether mm-hmm. some of these big issues um, are getting the funding and the attention they deserve. Let's hope so. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Sophia, you can head to www.sophiawoman.com. They also have a course on money and children, which I'm going to buy right now. And while we may have developed most of our money mindsets already, there's never a bad time to start building your knowledge around wealth and investing. If you liked this episode, please let me know. You can leave me a review or you can reach out to me directly at hello at thepurposeeffectpod.com. And if you really liked it, share it with a friend or a family member who you think it might help. You'll hear from me in a couple of weeks time and we'll be talking about sustainable fashion and Web3. So watch this space. Bye.